Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Alex, where are you at? There he is. All right. Alex dressed up as life tonight, and he's handing out lemons. All right. Witty. So I come up here, and there's one laying here ready for me. Not too shabby, my friend. Oh, welcome tonight. It's good to see your smiling faces. I love, uh, you know, obviously on Halloween night, some people associate this with is dressing up in candy. Some people associate Halloween with all things evil. I love that we get to come into this place and worship the God of the universe and have a baptism tonight. And that's the way that we, yeah, that's the way that we're celebrating it together. Um, yeah, grateful for that. The, the, if you've been around for a while, you know that we've been talking through miracles uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Just talking through these different miracles that we see mostly in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, and have been unpacking those. Um, tonight, I'm, I'm going to, the spoiler alert on the, my little sermon time of tonight is that we're going to be talking about a big old churchy word called sanctification. That's the, that's the theological nerd term for it, okay? Um, but I don't want to scare you off with that. What that means is, what sanctification is, what, it me- what does it mean to live a life where we look more and more like Jesus? That's it. What does it mean to live a life where tomorrow I look a, just a little more like Jesus than I did today? That's the thing that he draws us to, is looking like him. And it's not just tonight. Well, I, I want to practically talk about that through the next two, three, four weeks that we're together. And I mentioned this a week or two ago, um, but we've got some, from, some fun ways to do that lined up. It's not all just going to be me talking at you. A uh, lot of different ways in the coming weeks to talk about what does it practically mean to live a life that looks a little more like Jesus every day. Um, to, to launch into that tonight, I want to let you into like a family joke, okay? An inside joke that we have in our family. And this, this is a real story, but it, it, it developed into a family joke that we use pretty often. Because I did this experiment on my kids when they were really little, all right? Like behavior modification kind of experiment that lasted for years, okay? It was sort of an inside joke to me, and I was the only one who thought it was funny, and I really did think it was funny, and I did it for a long time. Here's what it was like. So we have six kids, and um, especially when Elijah and Levi were younger, so it was like Elijah, Levi, Silas were most of the family that we had at that time. Um, Joe has always been the favorite. You guys, hands down, no question. Every kid wanted to be with her all the time. So if we're both sitting on a couch, she was the one that they wanted to go like snuggle up with and be under a blanket with. And dad was just like over there. That was my role all the time. She wanted to go somewhere. It was like an absolute crying fit for them because they wanted to go along. If I walked out the door, it was like, see you, dad. Or it was just be like, I'm going. That's all I get, Okay. Chopped liver, basically, is, was my role as the dad. And so here's what I would do. Anytime I was going out to run an errand or something else like that, I would be like, hey, Elijah, you want to go with me? And he'd go, no. 
And I'd say, ah, oh, but, you know, you never know what's going to happen if you come with me. And he'd be like, no, nah, that's okay. And I'd be like, well, you have to come with me anyway. So I'd force him to come with me. We would go out on this errand together. And I would, somewhere along the line, to be like, why don't we stop at McDonald's and get some fries or something, you know? Or we'd be at Menards in line. And I'd be like, why don't you pick out any candy bar that you want? He'd be like, seriously? Yeah. And the moment that he would do that, the moment he would pick out the candy bar, I would let loose with this phrase, good things happen when you go with dad. Okay. <laughs> totally bribing them, okay? We're talking about a four-year-old who does not understand at all what I'm doing. And it was complete and utter behavior modification. And I just did this, and I did this, and I did this. Nobody thought it was funny except me, but I did it anyway faithfully until it finally bore fruit on one fateful day with Ezra, who I was going somewhere, and I said, hey, Ezra, do you want to come along with me? And he looks at me and grabs his shoes, and he was like, good things happen when you go with dad. I was like, yeah! Years, you guys. It took years for that to pay off. And so now if you hear that phrase in our family, that's, that's me messing with my children's minds, okay? So this idea of us becoming more like Jesus, um, is, it's a weird collaboration. I'm going to use that word a few times tonight as we talk. It's this collaboration between the God of the universe and us. It's his work but it's also our work. He partners with us in that. And the beautiful thing about the miracle that we're going to be uh, talking about tonight, I'm, I'm really more storytelling tonight than I am preaching because we're going to be looking at the life of Peter, which if you're around me much, you know that I, I love him, but it's, it's because he wears all this stuff on the outside. He's just one of those friends that you have. You have one of those friends. Like there's never an inside thought. It's always on the outside. They're, they're like the, the doing before thinking friend. All right, Peter is that friend. You have one in your group. If you think you don't have one in your group, that's you. You're the one in your group that behaves that way, okay? And Peter is like this all the time. But you can see throughout his life, especially his time with Jesus, this weird collaboration in Jesus inviting him into deeper deeper and deeper spaces over and over again. And so as we think about our lives the same way, I mean, I, the first point of this, you guys, is, is God leading your life? I mean, that's, that's the beginning question. There's an invitation, and you'll hear it in Peter's life, but there's an invitation to you too, where God extends his hand to you, and he's like, come on, what are we doing together? What are we doing with your life together? Because I know ages 18 to 23, a big question for you is meaning, purpose, Do I get to invest in something in my own life that matters? Is that like, what am I doing on this planet? Why was I put here? That that is a question that should matter to you. And at the very beginning of that is the God of the universe extending his hand to you, just like he did to Peter and saying, come on, let's go. I got stuff for you. I know why you were put on this planet. I'm the one who put you here. So to understand Peter, who is our entire illustration tonight, just his life, Um, first I want to introduce you to where was home base for Peter. Because you have your space. You know where you come from. You come from Naperville, or you come from Springfield, or you come from Bloomington Normal. And you know your places, right? Those are familiar to you. That's what's common to you, all right? This, if you look way up to the top here, I mean, the Dead Sea's down here on the bottom below Jerusalem, but way up there in Galilee, um, is, is what you'll see most times in Scripture is the Sea of Galilee. Okay, they call it the Sea of Galilee. I actually wrote down, because it's, sometimes it's confusing, in the Old Testament, because there's so much history around this spot, you guys. In the Old Testament, that was known as the Sea of Chinnereth or Chinneroth. 
In the New Testament, sometimes it's called the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias because Tiberias was near there. But usually you just hear it called the Sea of Galilee. You'll see both those other names in the text that we have tonight. And it's all this same spot, that little lake up there. It is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. So it's more like a lake. It's not truly a sea. That's still a big lake, right? I mean, but not like Lake Michigan. It looked like a teardrop compared to Lake Michigan. I actually wanted to find, so this is not produced video. This is just some dude's random video that he popped up on YouTube when he was visiting the Sea of Galilee. All right, that's it. That's what the Sea of Galilee looks like on a windy day. This is what Peter knew. He was a fisherman. He fished this. So he was familiar with these banks and these mountains. And I mean, like, that was, this was common for Peter. This was his everyday reality. Okay, but what's crazy about that spot, you guys, this is the place on the northwest shore of that lake is where Jesus will give his sermon on the mount, Matthew 5 through 7. This is where Jesus will calm the storm that's almost going to drown the boat and all the disciples are freaking out. Not far away from this lake is where he, he feeds the 5,000. Capernaum is a town that's pretty close to this lake, and that was sort of home base. A lot of, like, they would come back to Capernaum often him and the disciples. So much Jesus history, you guys, represented around this one place. But it was home base for sure for Peter. It is what he knows. And more specifically, what Peter knows is fishing. He was a fisherman. What does a fisherman do? Fishes. All right, catches fish, cleans the nets, cleans the fish, sells the fish, goes back out and fishes on repeat. That's what Peter does. He's not a real wealthy dude, but he's also not destitute. This is a good living for him. He's got a fishing boat. It's his family business. He's grown up in it. It's exactly what he knows. And so again, he's on this lake day after day after day after day. And so our miracle happens, surprise, surprise, in the Sea of Galilee. Let's take a look. Luke 5. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, that is Peter, by the way, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. So you got the picture right now. The crowds are pressing in. Jesus is trying, like, from an audio geek perspective, this is also a good audio technique because like sound carries over water. So Jesus pushes out a little bit. He can get away from the crowds and he's standing a few feet out from shore. It's also helping his voice carry so everybody can hear him. But it's Peter's with him. You know, Peter comes out with him and he's just sort of chilling in the boat while Jesus is giving this sermon. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Now catch the pushback. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night. Didn't catch a thing. This is a polite way. Notice that they weren't fishing at this time, right? Those of you who fish, you know that there are times of day that you should fish and times of day that you shouldn't fish because it's really, really hard to catch fish at one o'clock in the afternoon. So this is why they're cleaning their nets at this time. They've already worked hard when the fish are supposed to be there. They weren't there. So that's his polite pushback. Jesus, we worked hard all night. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. 
A shout for help brought the partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. And when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. So understand, this miracle is so overwhelming for Peter that he recognizes that the God of the universe is in the boat with him. He was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and they followed Jesus. This is the first miracle that Peter gets to witness, as far as we understand it. And if you didn't know the other Gospels, you might think that this is super weird to be like, wait a minute. He left everything to follow Jesus just in this one interaction? Like, this was the first time they met? This, this wasn't the first time they met. In John 1, we actually get an interaction that happened with Jesus maybe even up to a year before this, where Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. And that was the moment where Jesus looked at him and said, Hey, you're Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. Super weird introduction to somebody to be like, <laughs> oh, that's, this is your name? I'm going to call you this name. Be like, I just met you. I don't, I don't understand. But Jesus sees something in Peter, you guys. He knows this invitation is coming down the road. And he sees what Peter is going to become. And he gives him a new name that, he do, that doesn't quite fit him yet. Aren't you glad you're out of that stage? You know the stage in like junior high where your parents were buying shoes that were like two sizes too big because they knew you would grow that many sizes before you'd wear out of them. Like, I, that's what I feel like when I look at this moment with Peter. The original moment in John 1 where he meets Jesus and Jesus is like, no, you have a name that I'm going to give you that you haven't quite grown into yet. You have an identity that I'm going to share with you that you haven't quite grown into yet, but you'll get there. You'll get there, Peter. You'll get there. I hope as I speak some of these things out loud tonight that you can relate to them. To be like, huh, Wonder if God has an identity for me that I need to grow into. Wonder if he needs to speak some things over me that maybe don't quite fit me just yet, but they will. He knows what they are. He knows how you grow. He knows the pace that you're on. He knew where Peter was at. One of the questions, when I read this in study for tonight, I read this miracle and I was like, fish? Is this the least impressive miracle that Jesus ever did? I mean, like... Just a bunch of fish. That's the, quant the quantity. The miracle here is an excessive quantity of fish, which would be a curse in my world. If I were blessed with an excessive quantity of fish, it'd be like, perfect. I hope, I hope it's garbage day because I don't want these things around very often. But again, think about what Peter's daily reality was. Jesus, I mean, like Jesus designed this miracle for him. Peter was the one who got it first. Here is a God, or a man, I should say. He's looking at Jesus and saying, here is a man who has power over nature in a way that I don't understand. He knew he was standing in front of something different. He might not have known exactly what Jesus was yet, but he recognized immediately. I mean, this miracle was customized, you guys, for Peter the fisherman. So what's growth going to look like? Because Peter at this point, I mean, I, I want you to understand, I, even those of you who did not grow up around church, so, you know, you're like, I don't really know much about the Apostle Peter. You probably still do. 
Because he's just so famous. I mean, like, again, the walking on water stories. Peter was the one who stepped out of the boat to meet Jesus. He doesn't know that's going to happen. You guys, if we get down on Peter's level in this moment, in this story, he has no idea that all of that stuff is going to happen. He doesn't know he's going to walk on water. He doesn't know that he's going to watch Jesus raise somebody from the dead. He doesn't know that. You guys, all he has is the fish miracle. (laughs) That's all he's got at this point. Nothing else. He doesn't, at one point, he will stand and watch Jesus be transfigured and stand between Moses and Elijah. That will happen while he follows Jesus. But he doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know that yet. He's just stuck in his own timeline in this one particular moment. All he knows is what Jesus has revealed to him here. Can you relate? You ever feel like you're you're like, man, God, if you could just clue me in to some of the miraculous stuff you will do, then I, I will follow you there. And Jesus is like, that isn't the way I work. One miracle at a time. One step of faith at a time. That's the way that he seems to work. You are in the same spot that Peter is. And there were times when Peter got it really right, you guys. I was laughing at this, too, because Peter's spiritual journey looks like this, all right? In just one chapter, in Matthew 16, there's a moment where Jesus is talking to the disciples. I'm going to use this a lot tonight. There's a moment where Jesus is talking to the disciples. And he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter's the one who responds, and he says... You know, well, some say this, and some say this, some say this. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We call that Peter's confession, Matthew 16, 18. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Peter, for that was the Holy Spirit speaking through you. I mean, like, A++, Peter, nailed it, okay? Same chapter, same chapter, Matthew 16. You flip forward just a few more verses, and do you, know, do you know what we find? Jesus predicting that he's going to be killed and crucified. And it says that Peter pulls him aside to rebuke him. You, let me repeat that. Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke Jesus. Maybe you didn't hear me. Peter pulls Jesus, God of the universe, aside, and he says, no, that's not going to happen. I won't let that happen. And Jesus looks at him and says, why don't you get behind me, Satan? (laughs) Same chapter, you guys. That's the same chapter of Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, "You, you, perfect. That is exactly right. And then later on, Peter rebuking Jesus himself and Jesus saying, no, if what you are saying were to happen, you would be in line with Satan. You guys, Peter and Peter doing this in his spiritual journey. Do you relate? Do you relate at all to that? Man of high highs and low lows. Let me give you the lowest. Let me give you the absolute lowest. Because in Mark 14, Jesus says, hey, you guys are going to fall away to his disciples. He says that. You're going to fall away. And Peter specifically, again, responds. He's always vocal. He's always out there. Peter responds and says, even if they do, Jesus, I won't do it. And so Jesus turns his attention to Peter. And he says, actually, you specifically, three times, the rooster, three times you'll deny me before the rooster crows. 
He says it specifically to Peter. Everybody's going to deny me. I won't, Jesus. Turn. Yeah, you will. You'll do it, and then the rooster's going to crow. And so we have this text of that happening in the end of Mark 14. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out in the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man was one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you were one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Darkest moment for sure. High highs, low lows. Can you relate? Can you relate? When you make a dumb mistake that people, other people know about and other people see, when you are unbelievably confident that you can do something and then you're like, oh, <laughs> maybe not. And this wasn't private, this was public. All these words he had had in front of these other disciples, wanting to be respected, wanting to be the man, telling Jesus that this would never happen, and Jesus specifically calling it out. You guys, can you imagine the shame? Maybe you can, actually. Maybe you can, because maybe you carry something like that for yourself. Imagine him laying awake at night with his head on his pillow, being like, why? Why did I? Why did I have to do that? Why did I have to say that? And he can say, God, will you forgive me for this? But after this point, Jesus is dead. What does redemption look like when the person that you offended is gone? Self-doubt, self-hate, high highs, low lows. That's who Peter was. And this is why John 21 becomes one of my favorite pieces of scripture of all time. You tell me as we look at this and read this together, and I chose to put a lot of scripture on the screen tonight, but I want you to hear it. I want you to hear the stories that scripture is telling because this is a real man's life. This is, these are not made up characters in a movie. This is the life of a real man, Peter, who had that moment in Luke 5 where he was called with a miraculous catch of fish who had these ups and downs as he followed Jesus and great moments and terrible moments and great moments and terrible moments. And then you guys, we get this. This is so tender and beautiful. Tell me in listening to this that our God doesn't have a sense of humor. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Now this is after Jesus was killed gone for three days, and then they had seen him in the upper room resurrected, okay? So they know that he's resurrected, and, and, and they're trying to figure out what all of this means. So this is in the days and weeks after Jesus was raised from the dead, but they still don't fully understand what's going on or what they're supposed to do. So they go back, and what do they do? They're together, and Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> back to what he knows, right? Back to the Sea of Galilee, 
back to what he's familiar with. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Does sound familiar? This is about three years later, by the way, from the first miracle that we looked at. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. So he's, dis- he's disguised himself a little bit, so they're not aware of his identity in this moment. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And so he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he puts on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. So he leaves them in the boat, you guys. John says, that's the Lord. And Peter's Peter grabs his clothes, jumps into the water, starts swimming, leaves them with the fish, right? It's just like him. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So Jesus has already had a private moment with, Jesus, with, uh, with Peter on the beach. But he's about to have another one. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so, so with the fish, which is a lot like the feeding of the 5,000. Remember when he did that? This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Peter later would be crucified upside down. He would be crucified just like Jesus. He asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to die the same death that Jesus died. And Jesus is talking about that here in advance. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You guys, this miracle, it's it's bookends on Jesus's first moments with Peter and his last moments with Peter. And it couldn't be more precious. 
in the beginning where Jesus fills these nets full of fish and Peter realizes that he must be some kind of great prophet or deity or something. He's not quite sure at that moment what he is, but he recognizes that it's there. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, come follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And what's the last moment that we have with Peter and Jesus together? Jesus fills another net full of fish. This beautiful symmetry that we see in Peter's journey here. And how does it end? Come follow me. Follow me, Peter. Keep following me. And if you didn't pick up on it, he gives him three chances to affirm how much he loves him. One chance for every time he denied him. That Peter was able to speak over that lie. Yeah, God, I love you. Jesus wasn't trying to hold his head in shame. He was redeeming each one of those for Peter. I love John 21. I love this tender breakfast on the beach that God has to bring Peter out of that. How does this change Peter moving forward? Pretty significantly. Pretty seriously. In Acts 2, Peter will preach with confidence a sermon that 3,000 people respond in baptism. The first recorded sermon that we have after Jesus is resurrected. 3,000 people are baptized on that day. Acts 4, Peter and John are in front of the council. They're preaching in front of the council. And it says that they, the, the council members, who are these religious authorities, are amazed at Peter and John because they realize that they are unschooled and ordinary men, that they shouldn't be preaching with this kind of wisdom and authority, and yet they are. That's who Peter becomes after that. Peter will become the guy who's put in prison and still has confidence and faith. Does he always get it right? No. Even after Jesus is gone, we still see a moment. Paul talks about it in Galatians where he has to go and and oppose Peter to his face. They have to have an argument because Peter's theology was just a, a little bit wonky. And so they work that out even in that moment. So it's not perfect. Peter still isn't perfect in that moment, but he's growing. He's growing. Do you feel that for you? That there's this invitation that Jesus gives to you, and it's this invitation to look a little bit more like him tomorrow than you do today, but you don't quite yet. And one day you're like, man, I feel like I am on fire, and I feel like I, feel like I could do anything with God. And the next day you feel like I am a piece of trash who can't accomplish anything. And the next day it's different. So it's like, three steps forward and two steps back and four steps forward and one step back. And you guys, I am here to encourage you that that was the life of Peter. That was who he was. That was who God said would be a pillar in the church. For crying out loud, read Hebrews 11, what we call the hall of faith. And you'll read about people like David, (laughs) a man after God's own heart, except he was a murderer and an adulterer. Five steps forward, four steps back, three steps forward, one step back. You read about Abraham. I mean, just keep going down the line, you guys. I used to think when I was a young Christian that spiritual growth was, was like this. It was like linear, you know? You plot it on the old XY graph and it just goes up like that. Here's what I've learned over the years. And this isn't just true of my scriptural examples. This is true of the people that I know in my own personal life. And it's true of me that it looks a little more like this. And actually there is growth. It's hard to see in real time, 
But as you look back over the journey, as you start to see some of those highs and some of those lows, you begin to realize, I am changing. God is doing a work in me. I am different than I was a year ago. I do have a kind of peace that I didn't understand. I am able to forgive in ways that I couldn't two years ago. And it doesn't feel like it's different than last week. But when you look back further, you're like, God has brought me on a journey, just like he was bringing Peter. Sanctification. It's this journey of looking a little more like Jesus every day. So let me jump back to that word collaboration that I used. Collaboration. Who's doing this? Is it my work or is it God's? Is it my sweat and effort that makes me look more like Jesus, or is is God doing this transforming work for me? That's where, you guys, I truly believe I can call it a collaboration. God's the power behind it, but you have some responsibility in it. There's a beautiful passage, a scripture in Proverbs that says this, the godly may trip seven times, but they'll get up again. One disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. Do you want to know why this verse is an encouragement to me? Because the difference between the righteous and the wicked is not whether they mess up. It is not whether they get tossed down to the ground. It's whether they get up again. Certainly true of Peter. Also true of me. Also true of you. If you think that real church, whether we're talking about encounter or what you grew up with, I don't know. I mean, like tons of different backgrounds in the room. So I I don't know where you grew up. If you think that the people standing on the stage are perfect... Whew, I, got, I got some news for you. So let me, let me just be the first to point out to you that I've got my stuff, that I struggle with anger and unforgiveness, that I, I struggle with these things that... that um, I, the, the big difference between me and Peter, I don't wear that stuff on the outside. I, I'm a little more civilized. I'm a little more trained at keeping that stuff in, you guys. But I, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to you that I walk this life of perfection. I don't. I look a little more like Jesus every day. God uses people around me like you and my wife and my family to help point me more toward him. And the moment that I am not struggling toward the Lord, that's a problem. But it has been and always will be a struggle toward the Lord. God, take this and renew it. God, take this and redeem it. God, help me be a different person. What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? The wicked don't get back up again. Look at these different messages we see in Scripture. I just grabbed a few. These are things that are our responsibility. We are to, let me, let me read. I've got a little more in my notes, I think, than I do on the screen. We are to make every effort, Hebrews 12, 14. We are to put on the new self. That's Ephesians 4, 24. We are not to conform to the patterns of this world. That's Romans 12, 2. We are to live a holy life. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. We are to turn from evil and do good, 1 Peter 3, 11. So these are things that God is telling, like all these different instructions that we see all throughout Scripture where God's like, you know what, you do have a role in this. You aren't helpless in this act. These are things that you need to set your mind and your heart to do. We aren't helpless. But I also want you to take a great deal of refuge in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. Who's ultimately doing that work? You guys, it's not you. May the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. And so Scripture gives us, yes, we want you to try. 
Paul would say, actually, I want you to try to be perfect. You're like, eee, I can't do that. And Paul would say, yeah, me either. Isn't it cool that we have Jesus? <laughs> but again, Paul would say, I'm not telling you not to try. I'm telling you to, to try and you will fail. And then you get to live in the grace of Jesus Christ who washes that clean. But ultimately, it is not your effort that brings you closer to God. Ultimately, it is God who keeps you blameless through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's what it means to live in grace. Your, gra- your effort and grace are not opposed to each other. We make effort, and it's such a small little thing that we put on the altar, and God's like, I can multiply that. I can work with that. You guys, he extended an invitation to Peter, and Peter said, okay. And God was like, I can work with that. And he extends an invitation to you, and you say, I don't know. I, gotta, I don't know how to do this. I don't have a lot to offer but I'll give it. And God says, I can work with that. What's so beautiful to me to jump back to this idea that Peter was clueless, absolutely clueless about what was to come, but he saw the invitation like I did with my kids when I was like, hey, you want to come to the lumber yard? And they didn't know what was going to happen. And whereas my little game of good things happen when you go with dad, right, was just my little bribery. <laughs> you guys, the God of the universe has a very different promise for you. Good things truly do happen. You do find purpose and meaning and hope and forgiveness and joy in this world when you accept that invitation. Good things do happen when you go with him that you otherwise would have never known on your own. And for the next few weeks, I look forward to exploring how to do that practically with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Peter, for uh, all of his mistakes recorded plainly in Scripture. I just, I, I think of him and Mark actually working out what details to be shared in Mark's gospel and Peter not going to any lengths to hide his mistakes. Thank you for that, Jesus. I relate to them. I feel them in my soul. I want to be more like you tomorrow than I am today. And so I pray for every person in this room, you'd help us to make that our journey. Take our meager little offering to you and multiply it. And help us live in the reality of your grace where you make us blameless. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.